Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. This week we're talking about clean water technology. Like much of the rest of the country, we've been both fascinated and horrified by what's been going on in East Palestine, where a catastrophic train derailment resulted in a huge toxic chemical disaster that's likely to affect both the physical and economic health of people in that region for years to come. So, of course, we wanted to find out what's being done to protect our water if something like that ever happened here. To do that, we talked to Jeff Bronowski, who manages the City of Akron's Water Supply Bureau, which pumps over 30 million gallons of water per day to 300,000 customers in more than a dozen different communities throughout Summit County. The raw water we ultimately treat for distribution into the Akron water system is held and stored in large reservoirs in Portage County and Geauga County. The city of Akron owns nearly 20,000 acres of land, and that 20,000 acres of land has the primary purpose of, one, storing nearly 10 billion gallons of raw water, as well as this land is used as watershed protection for the waters itself. So one of the primary or one of the initial ways to defense from large pollution outbreaks or even the smaller pollution is to, we utilize this land, one, to prevent development. Geauga County, most especially, has not had the growth that you see, for example, like in a Medina County, because Akron is the primary landholder. And with all of the thousands and thousands of acres of land that we own in Geauga County, which includes the Ladue Reservoir and which includes the East Branch Reservoir, has really starved the opportunity for this expansive growth in those communities. So when you don't have that growth, you don't have the industry, you don't have a lot of the transportation, you don't have like in Geauga County, for example, you don't have any major rail lines crossing like you would in East Palestine. Next, Jeff explains why the East Palestine derailment, which happened about 76 miles southeast of Akron, didn't affect our water supply. As you listen, you'll hear him refer to the Continental Divide, which was confusing to me because I always thought that was out west, along the crest of the Rocky Mountains, which it is. But it turns out there's actually another one, the Continental Drainage Divide, which runs through northern Ohio. We get our water from the Great Lakes watershed, okay? So we are north of the Continental Divide, which ultimately runs east to west across the, the state of Ohio. Our drinking water supply is on the north side of that east to west line. That line pretty much runs through Summit Lake and ultimately any water, any rains, any anything that happens north of that east-west line ultimately ends up in Lake Erie. We're drawing our water from the upper Cuyahoga River watershed, which we draw through our Lake Rockwell Reservoir. And so there is no connection to anything south of the divide. Now, East Palestine is located south of the divide, and anything that happens south of the divide 
ultimately ends up in the Ohio River Basin, that ultimately ends up in the Mississippi. So if you follow this story, you may hear of like the city of Cincinnati being concerned and the city of Louisville being concerned because that's ultimately where all of that runoff, all of that pollution will ultimately go. It will ultimately go to the Ohio River, it will ultimately go to the Mississippi, and then it will ultimately go to the Gulf of Mexico simply because of the hydraulics that exist. So we would be greatly concerned if a derailment were to happen in the upper Cuyahoga River watershed. But like I mentioned earlier, there are no major train lines that travel across. Our primary concern would be like the Ohio Turnpike, which runs east to west, or Route 14, which is on the northern limits of, of Lake Rockwell Reservoir. So those would be our biggest concerns and what we prepare for in our emergency management plans. So, yeah, you mentioned a lot of things that I find interesting. One of them being, once you have a spill, you mentioned that you have these wetlands, which provide kind of natural filtering. But what if it went past the wetlands and it got to, let's say, the water plant? I, I know you have filtering there. Are there filters that can take even that kind of stuff out of it? Or or once it's in there, that's that? If this contamination event that we speak of were to ultimately make it into Lake Rockwell Reservoir, one of the initial line of defense beyond the natural line that we talked about is we have a staff that is specifically trained in emergency response and hazmat response. We have fully stocked hazmat trailers. And in these hazmat trailers, you have adsorbent pads, you have different types of slick booms, you have sandbags, you have a whole host of like absorbent materials that are available to us and ready and waiting in the event that there was some type of, of catastrophic spill. All right, secondarily, we do have flexibility in turning off the water plant in the event that we would see a slug of contamination coming down the river and then ultimately into the lake, we can turn off the water plant for a short amount of time and let that pass by. So that's another option. In the case where it may ultimately come into the water plant, we have a very advanced treatment system that is in operation 24-7, 365, and has the ability to ramp up to even further treatment to take on any type of unique situation beyond what we typically experience. So we have a whole host of chemical means of treatment. We have oxidation that's available to us through sodium permanganate, chlorine dioxide, sodium hypochlorite that oxidize any contaminant that would be coming through. They control taste and odor control biological growth, they remove iron and manganese, the chlorine would kill pathogens and viruses that may come into the treatment process. We also have a powder-activated carbon facility that uses powder-activated carbon to absorb contaminants, and this is one of our primary tools we may use for like algal toxins. You may remember, you know, maybe five, six years ago, the city of Toledo experienced the shutdown of their water system because of algal toxins. We have things like powder-activated carbon available to us. 
If all that sounds pretty complicated and hard to manage, it is, which is where our next guest, Christopher Miller, comes in. Miller is an associate professor in the Department of Civil Engineering at the University of Akron and is the CEO and founder of Fontis Blue, which supplies advanced drinking water analysis software to utilities in a number of different cities throughout the United States, including the city of Akron. They're required to do lots of water quality monitoring, but oftentimes these are simple measures. We take a lot of those simple measures and put them into a forecast, much like with the weather. If it's going to rain, you take your umbrella. So in our case, if it's forecasting, what they don't want is going to be higher. They can take action and increase their treatment, do things that will reduce that forecast and get it back to a level where they're more comfortable. But he says they're also trying to help the city figure out whether it would be worth the extra money in the future to filter the water even more than they do now, while at the same time possibly recommending that city residents buy whole house filtration systems. Here's why. Believe it or not, there's more risk in your shower. The inhalation of taking a five or 10 minute hot shower is greater than drinking the water all day long. This is because why? It's aerosolized and I'm breathing it? Yeah, yeah. And so it's that these disinfection byproducts, which are known carcinogens that arrive at people's taps, it's not a matter of if they're there, it's what concentration they're at. And so you can remove them with a carbon filter, but they're volatile under warm water conditions. So when you take a shower and they'll volatilize. And so even so you're not removing them with your refrigerator filter, but coming into the house and just coming straight out the shower head then. So, and that risk can be five to 10 times more than drinking the water, a couple gallons of the water. Okay, so does this mean I need to get a filter for my shower head? So we're running those calc numbers right now. This is what I'm saying is you don't want you know, cities necessarily want to be in the business of recommending treatment systems like Culligan or the other, you know, it's like, where's this, their role in that? But the short answer is that this where Fontis, we think we can be a role. This is a fill a role of making sure these are cost-effective treatment systems that are applicable. And, you know, how do we provide some of that information? You basically can get a whole house carbon system that would remove everything that comes in the house. So whether you drink it or whether you shower or whatever, and those are around $1,000 or so, you know, for the whole house system. But the filters maybe changed every two years, like 8500 bucks, not too bad. That was University of Akron civil engineering professor and Fontas Blue CEO, Christopher Miller. To hear more of our conversation, as well as the one we had with the City of Akron Water Supply Bureau Manager, Jeff Bronowski, go to our website, wakr.net, or listen to our podcast on your mobile device. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590-WAKR and WAKR.net. <laughs>